From the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. One of the things that we have to have is, is a bit of a toll, a cost to people who are going to create and spread things that are false. Just like for politicians who say things that are false, getting them fact-checked or, or having them called out for that is a cost and a toll that if they have to pay, maybe they're going to be a little more careful. My guest today is Craig Silverman. Silverman is an award-winning author and journalist and one of the world's leading experts on online misinformation, fake news, and content verification. He is the media editor at BuzzFeed News, where he leads a global beat covering platforms, online misinformation, and fake news. From 2004 to 2015, he wrote Regret the Error, a blog about media accuracy and corrections, which became part of the Pointer Institute for Media Studies and was the basis for an award-winning book of press criticism. Craig Silverman, welcome to Modern Media. Thank you. So I want to start with something you uh, published today, as a matter of fact. I just uh, came across the piece about uh, Facebook, Facebook using um, some new algorithms or some new methods of, of flagging whether or not uh, news is um, reputable or, or potentially uh, problematic. Can you tell me a little bit about what they're doing and your understanding of it? Yeah. Uh, obviously, this all comes out of the public backlash that they faced after the election, where reporting we did and reporting other people showed that really a lot of the stuff that was going insanely viral during the election was often completely false. And Facebook, I don't think, was really watching that as it was happening, and it was after the fact. Uh, and so they, they've rolled out quite a, a large program to try and stem the flow of misinformation on their platform. And one of the key pieces of that is, is they've partnered with places like PolitiFact and Snopes, third-party fact-checkers, as they're called. And these fact-checkers now have access to kind of an exclusive data stream where Facebook is surfacing articles that are spreading and being shared that may be good candidates uh, for investigation and for debunking. Um, maybe they're false. And so these folks will investigate them. And if two or more agree that an article is false, then actually anytime someone tries to share that article, that link on Facebook, there's going to be a little label on it that says this is disputed by, you know, Snopes and PolitiFact or, or what have you. And the kind of interesting thing for me is watching this, it's been almost exactly nine months since to the day since they announced that. And everyone's really focused on that public-facing label. But the thing about Facebook is that it's so big. It's 2 billion people logging in at least once a month. And a lot of those people are actually spending way more amount of time than just logging in once a month. So there's an insane amount of data. And the stuff that Facebook chooses to show you in your newsfeed is all determined by algorithms. They decide what they think you're going to want to see. So what's been happening without people really noticing it is that as these fact checkers do their work and tell Facebook this story is false, this story is false, this story is false, Facebook is building a database and it's now training machines based on all of that data, all of these false stories to say, here are the patterns of what false stories might look like. And so now Facebook is really starting to roll out automated ways of making sure that stuff that is completely false is not getting a lot of spread on the platform. And uh, so it's an interesting thing where you have humans, fact checkers, checking stuff that's being shared on Facebook. People see the label. But what really matters is that the machines are learning from all of this data that's being gathered and starting to figure out, oh, this this is the kind of story that we should not be spreading. And uh, so it was just kind of a way to, to remind people, hey, you know, when it comes to Facebook, it's the data and the algorithms that are really making a lot of the big decisions. So do we know what the qualities are that they're looking for? I mean, this is going to be over time, obviously, but how are the humans reporting into what are – the, are the human – 
fact checkers reporting into what it is that made it seem fake or what, I mean, how, how are the machines going to learn? What are they looking at? Yeah. So the short answer is we don't know specifically what Facebook is training their machines on. Uh, we can take a guess. Uh, but as with a lot of things related to Facebook, you know, the data and what they're specifically looking at, we don't know the details. It's a bit of a black box, right? And so in this case, the kind of stuff that you could look at is one, uh, if, if a particular website keeps publishing stories that fact checkers determine to be completely false, well, over time, Facebook may start to downgrade anything from that website. There may be a reputational factor that starts to take hold. So that's kind of an obvious signal you can imagine. Another one, um, they might actually scan the text of the article itself and look for kind of linguistic signals or elements within that text that might signal, oh, this is a really low quality piece of information or completely false. Maybe, for example, it has a, something in a quote quote, but nowhere else can Facebook's AI find that exact same quote. And if it's coming from, a, again, a URL that's a little bit suspect, you put those two together, maybe these are good signals. So I think they're looking at a variety of things, and it's also really early. So I don't think it's, it's a case of Facebook having cracked the code of this. But I, I think their AI over time keeps getting better. And this is, this is the thing that's really key. Researchers will often do kind of a start and end project where they gather, you know, false things and try to analyze them and train machines on them. But at a certain point, it ends. Whereas with Facebook, they've got these fact checkers working every single day. So they have all the data coming in all the time. They've got great training data. These machines will, will presumably get better over time. So this sort of begs a question for me that, you know, and this may be too much of a big sort of overarching question, but what is it that constitutes other than you know observable verifiable inaccuracy or f falsity what sort of flags something as fake news for you yeah um there are some characteristics of of kind of fake news websites uh, one of the things that you see, for example, of people who are maybe, you know, in Macedonia or overseas just kind of running really low-quality clickbait sites or just copying fake stories is that they use the same templates over and over again. So design is a, is a cue because they use the same template, but also a lot of um, web website templates now come with kind of places where you can put in your, your Facebook page URL and your Twitter URL. But a lot of times these folks don't even bother to fill those things in. So you have empty things with like the default elements of a website template. So that's one of the cues that you can often see. Um, a lot of times they won't tell you who actually runs the website and where it's based, or they give you a fake address or things like that. And so if you look on a website and it doesn't have an about page or the about page has basically no information, that's kind of a cue that, okay, wait a second, what's really going on with this website? So there are some things you can look at aside from really just digging into the story itself to figure out, oh, you know, there, there are some cues here that maybe this isn't a real thing. Maybe it's just kind of a quickly thrown up website where they're just putting whatever they can to get whatever traffic they can to earn money from ads. Okay. So, and it, so, and obviously one of the things that could be is, you know, the, the headlines that scream, you know, this, this has got to be silly that, yeah. that, that, that sort of uh, emulate the kind of national Enquirer kind of headline. Yeah. Like, like, like a lot of all caps words yeah. is, is maybe, a, <laughs> maybe a signal. Uh, and truthfully, I mean, talking about Facebook's AI, I wouldn't be surprised if they were looking at headline syntax um, for the use of all caps words, for the use of, you know, certain types of phrasing to, to actually kind of cue these things. Yeah. So I saw something, uh, Yesterday, I think on 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 Facebook, it came up, and it was coming up in friends feeds, and it was this uh, doctored picture uh, that depicted Donald Trump, um, President Trump, 
um, saving cats. Yes, you know, two cats. A very, a very fit Donald Trump well, wading in the water. Is that one? This is yeah. the one, and this is the thing. So when I looked at that, my first reaction was, well, all you have to do is look at his stomach, and you know it's not Donald Trump. Right. But uh, so it got me thinking about parody because I'm, my first thought was, oh, this is just parody. This is somebody yeah. just making fun of the fact that one can do this. But what is the line uh, between sort of fake news and parody, do you think? I mean, mm-hmm. The Onion has made a, a killing off this. And, but we've even seen instances of people unwittingly sharing Onion articles. Absolutely. It still <laughs> happens. And The Onion is probably the best-known satirical website now maybe in the world. And there are still people who, who fall for it. But they're not necessarily falling for The Onion. They're just people who haven't bothered to look at where it came from. So that's, that's one of the challenges we have. Where is the line between fake news and satire? Well, I, I think that it's in some cases it's, it's not a very clear one. Uh, And so, you know, this is a a tricky piece in particular when it comes to the financial side of this because you have a lot of ad networks who are are allowing these sites to put their, their ads on the pages because the websites have simply said somewhere we're a satirical website. And so what I've seen is websites that will make up completely fake news stories that have no element of social commentary, that have no element of humor, that are simply just like accusing a politician of a crime with, with nothing really on top of it. And they've put satire as a disclosure and, and they're kind of getting away with it. So, uh-huh. so I think it's become a bit of a, a way for some of them to, to kind of figure out how to sort of still earn money and to use as a cover. And there are people who definitely, I think, use it as a cover. But what's even trickier are the folks who I think play both sides. So there's a site called the Burrard Street Journal, which is actually run out of Vancouver in Canada. And and they will publish genuinely funny satirical articles, sometimes about Vancouver. And then they will also publish completely fake news stories that that aren't funny about Donald Trump or about other things. And it's because those are what get the traction. That's what earns them the money. And so we see people mixing the two. And it is a judgment thing. It is, I read it and, you know, I laugh at it. I get the joke. I get the commentary. It's satirical versus um, this is just a, a, a something that reads and looks like a news story, but is just trying to fool people. And so I think there is an element of personal interpretation. And there is something to be worried about here is because, you know, we wouldn't want the government to come in and start deciding what is fake news versus satire because those kinds of laws could easily lead to censorship. So it's a, it's a tricky issue for sure. That's in, I, and I want to I want to pick up on that that you recently wrote about a sort of or wrote about a comprehensive study um, of partisan websites and related Facebook pages that reveal the extent to which American online political discourse is as you say powered by a mix of money and outrage. I love that phrase. Um, I wonder if we can unpack that statement a little bit and talk about that intersection of political outrage and sort of economic opportunism. Yeah, I mean, these these are two really big factors, and I think a lot of the political news people might be seeing, in particular on Facebook. So, so let's take the sort of outrage, the emotional piece first. Um, what what happens on a system like Facebook, whereby the more people are liking, sharing, commenting on a, a piece of content, the more the algorithms who are watching that say, "Oh, this is getting good reaction. Let me show it to more people who who might be interested in it because of their interests." And so what a lot of people over time have realized is that if you create content that has a very strong emotional component to it, that gets a strong emotional reaction, that's actually going to get a lot of likes and comments and shares. That's going to make the algorithm spread it. It's going to reach more people. You get more traffic. So that is um, a key piece. We, When we respond to something emotionally, we often take some kind of action. And so when it comes to politics, what I think people have really been mining 
um, certainly in the Obama administration is, is, you know, outrage against Obama. And so a lot of conservative sites, and especially newer ones, their, their bread and butter was, was just Obama did this terrible thing today or that terrible thing today or Hillary Clinton. And so what we've seen is, um, is a kind of collapse a lot in the middle of, of people actually, you know, respectfully disagreeing. Uh, it's not about everybody agreeing and seeing things the same way. It's about having actual some kind of conversation. And this stuff is really not conversation-based. They realize that anger is what makes people share and react. And so it's really about stoking partisan outrage. Our side is good. The other side is bad. And it works on Facebook, which drives traffic, which helps you you know, grow your Facebook page as well. Um, and that, that does lead into the financial component, uh, which is that there's been a huge business opportunity in partisan news emerging over the last few years. What used to be the case in media is that a lot of big brands and advertisers didn't really want to be close to, you know, breaking news and gory news content. They didn't want to be close to really strong, opinionated, partisan content. They liked to be in the lifestyle section or what have you. And so that kind of held media a little bit to the middle or it made them put their opinion section in a very specific area. But with online, there isn't any of that separation. And with online, if you have a website, you can sign up with an ad network and, and get ads on it. And brands, in many cases, have absolutely no idea what websites their ads go on. So this created an opportunity when you mix in Facebook as a massive source of traffic, when you know that political outrage gets you a lot of traffic, and when you know that advertisers aren't going to flee because they actually don't even know they're on your website, you've got a business opportunity. And so when we looked at um, domain name registrations for partisan political websites in the United States, we saw this huge spike in 2015 and 2016 of people who really flooded into this market. And a lot of them, when we talked to them, and we interviewed people on the liberal side and the conservative side, they were very frank that, yeah, this is a good business. There's a way to make money in this. And we actually found at least five people or companies who ran both liberal and conservative sites. <laughs> Uh, so and that clearly tells you the economic piece of it. Oh sure, I mean that's opportunism defined, right? This yeah. is, and so that begs a question for I me. Mean, it's a little bit of a I don't want to say it's a it's not a cynical question, but it's more of a uh, I wonder if I'm going to end up being pessimistic here. Is there is there any way to really sort of stop this train? What what should we be doing? Because it seems to me that the combination of good business opportunity and political outrage, neither one of which is really amenable to. Um, change for uh, the better, the greater good. <laughs> right, right. Um, when those two things are working together, it strikes me as we might be facing some pretty strong headwinds here. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, so historically, um, strong, strongly partisan media uh, does have a place in the United States and yeah. in the United States uh, history of media. Early newspapers were very partisan. But again, I think advertising helped push them a little bit more into kind of a, a middle or at least kind of ghettoizing the partisanship to a certain extent. And and so I think we're seeing this kind of rebirth of it right now because of the confluence of the business model, um, Facebook, and different factors. And what's happening right now, of course, because of the outrage around fake news, some of these political sites, frankly, were publishing stuff that was false or were being extremely misleading. Uh, and so they are now starting to actually get punished by Facebook. Um, as I talk to owners in a lot of these sites, they are talking about how the reach for their content is just not reaching the same amount of people. The traffic is down. So I think some of Facebook's efforts around misinformation are actually starting to remove a few of the economic incentives. That mm -hmm. being said, 
if today you run a liberal hyperpartisan site, you're probably seeing um, some good growth better than the conservative side because you have Donald Trump as your enemy. And so every day you just demonize Donald Trump and that does really well on Facebook. Uh, and so there's, there is a little bit of a correction happening. Um, I think there are some really big players in that partisan media world on Facebook now, and it's harder for people to get a foothold and to really grow and come in. So I think that may also um, prevent newer players. But I do think that a lot of these bigger hyperpartisan operations, which in some cases own multiple pages, multiple websites, I do think that, that a lot of them are going to be here to stay. So there's an element of it that it has a permanent place, but it will also be interesting to see um, how hospitable Facebook is to them on its platform, which is a big factor, and, and whether the public actually at some point starts to tire of this stuff. I, I mean, we had at the end of the 19th century, we had uh, newspapers in New York who were, were really over the top with sensationalism, um, in some cases partisanship, um, reporting stuff that was not true. And there was a bit of a snapback as we went into the 20th century and suddenly ethical codes started to take hold. Suddenly, um, you know, Pulitzer and his paper, The New York World, he decided to hire an ombudsman and put signs on the wall literally saying, accuracy, accuracy, accuracy. <laughs> So sometimes you do see a little bit of a snapback. Um, if, if maybe we've gone too far to one extreme, maybe we're going to start to see um, things come another way. But it, it's tough to predict overall. Is, so is, is debunking, is the act of debunking a sort of part of that process of trying to snap back? I mean, so you do a lot of work. Snopes does a lot of work. A lot of organizations do a lot of work of trying to say, no, this is fake. This is not true. But my, I guess my question is, is that part of the process? Is that uh, can you make a dent in that way? Um, I think you're able to make a bit of more of a dent now, particularly for the ones who signed up with Facebook. Uh, I don't think they're getting huge amounts of traffic, but the fact is through their work, they're informing the algorithms and they're starting to kind of have an impact in that way. A little bit indirect, not maybe what they thought. Uh, so that's that's helping. One of the things that we have to have is, is a bit of a toll, a cost to people who are going to create and spread things that are false. Just like for politicians who say things that are false, getting them fact-checked or, or having them called out for that is a cost and a toll that if they have to pay, maybe they're going to be a little more careful. And that's what a lot of the research in that area suggests is maybe there's a deterrent effect. So I think that that's a key piece of it, of showing there are people who are going to expose you. There are um, now algorithms that are going to factor in if you have been declared false. And, and all of those things can sort of help us in this environment. So it's interesting. In, in a lot of um, media studies uh, research, we, we debate about whether or not the market is a good enough regulator. Right. And so I, I sort of wonder now, are we talking about it seems to me at this point, Facebook, from a commercial standpoint and almost a public relations standpoint, is is acting as, trying to act as the regulator. Are we looking at a position, a situation where the government might have to come in and start to figure out how to regulate this, or are we going to leave this to the market and let Facebook and those other places do it? If you asked me that question a year ago, I'd say I don't see any regulation on the horizon. Um, even, frankly, in the wake of the election, I didn't really see an appetite for regulation increasing. There was tremendous pressure on Facebook and on Google and on others. But now, with the revelation by Facebook that um, a literal Russian troll farm spent about $100,000 on Facebook ads, in some cases targeting American voters, 
I think now we have Senator Mark Warner and we have others openly talking about, listen, maybe maybe we need to adjust some of these rules. So um, I, I think that Facebook and Google have been extremely good at warding off regulation, extremely good at making everyone on Capitol Hill feel like, oh, they're they're being responsible. Also, we don't want to we don't want to regulate the internet because we don't want to stop this great growth machine we have, which is fair. Uh, but right now, I I do think that either it's going to be a voluntary type of self-regulation that Facebook and Google are going to have to do at least specific to political ads, or there is going to be um, some stuff coming down. Now, that's the United States. The On the other part of this is it's a completely different scenario in the EU where they love to regulate <laughs> and they love to make fines against Facebook and Google. And I think they have actually, if it weren't for how, um, how terrified Facebook is of what can happen in Germany, I don't know that they would have put as much effort into their kind of anti-fake news initiative. And I do think that um, the EU is the bigger threat for regulation, whereas in the United States, I suspect that maybe by the end of the year, Facebook and Google will sort of volunteer to do a few things and everybody will say, all right, thank you very much. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, because so much of this came about in relationship to the U.S. election, um, I think we have a U.S.-centric kind of view of it. But you're right. These, these things don't know a lot of borders. No. And in fact, as you pointed out in another very important article, most of this fake news or a big chunk of the fake news was coming out of a small town in Macedonia? Yeah, yeah. There, there was a cluster of around 150 websites that were uh, aggressively pro-Trump websites. And, and these were teens and young men there who had taken an internet marketing course and were told to find a niche and they found a niche. And what they found was that the crazier and, and more over-the-top stuff was of pro-Trump or anti-Hillary Clinton, the better it performed on Facebook, the more money they earned from it. And so they just went looking for the best-performing, craziest, most outlandish stuff, and they just copied and pasted it. And they were very aggressive and very hungry, and they worked very hard on their Facebook pages and their websites. And they, in, in many cases, the crazy thing was you would have like a 17-year-old in Macedonia who copied and pasted a story from a, a really fringe, you know, low-quality conservative site, and the team in Macedonia would would he would have it perform better for him on Facebook than the originator in the United States, and like when we did some analysis, we found that there's a 20 year old guy in Macedonia who runs one of the biggest and best performing uh, conservative Facebook pages in the world for the, for the United States. So there is um, you know there is an international element, and it's not just towards the U.S. And the reason it's going towards the U.S. is is money. A U.S. visitor viewing an ad on a website is worth more than a visitor from mm. Macedonia. So it's basic kind of internet economics. But the other piece is when we started to look in Japan, Germany, France, and on and on, we found a misinformation problem in basically everywhere we looked where the internet was. Myanmar right now where there is um, ethnic cleansing going on with the, the, the Muslim minority population, months and months ago we published a story about how anti-Muslim memes and falsehoods were spreading like crazy on Facebook. So a country that is basically brand new to Facebook came with basically misinformation built in from day one. That's a really important point, I think, because, you know, we often think of, of you know, well, it's, if it's about President Trump and it can be a funny picture of him in a river <clears throat> with a with the six pack uh, that we know he doesn't have. But, you know, there's this other question of who is the target of fake news often. And, and one of the questions, I mean, recently there was a piece about, um, I think you wrote a piece about Black Lives Matter and how people were recirculating images of them, of, of, of African-American men and women blocking traffic, causing trouble, but those were right. not, that was a, those were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. um, are there, do we find that there's a, a kind of targeting going on here or uh, that people are using fake news strategies to 
really upend uh, movements to, for their for potentially racist, sexist purposes? I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, that is, and it relates to what we talked about, about the emotionally driven stuff performing well, particularly on Facebook. Most of the fake news operators that I have spoken to, it's, it's really, they focus on Facebook. That's where the traffic comes from. And so in these cases, if you find issues that people are extremely passionate about and that are also really divisive and you play to that, that's where you get the reaction. And so, yes, we do see a whole um, you know, slice, a big slice of fake news that is very much around divisive social issues, very much around politically polarized topics. Um, so there's that piece. There's another bucket, which is just uh, fake news about, say, celebrities um, and general news events. Like, for example, when Pokemon Go was a really huge phenomenon, there were tons of fake news articles about you know kids getting robbed for their, their phone over Pokemon Go and all different kinds of things. So there's there's that sort of just, just trying to hijack the news cycle. And then there's a big third bucket, which is your classic kind of shocking tabloidy crime story that is another big category of fake news. And so people, you know, making up stories about insane crimes and that kind of thing tends to also do well. And, and I would say those are like the three buckets that I see people tending to do their fake news around. And that makes sense because those are the big buckets that usually drive all sorts of print or television sales or whatever, yeah. what have you. Now, you mentioned Facebook is the real target here. Is there a way in which um, other social media platforms, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, whatever's coming next, um, are going to be part of this? And are they? do you know if they're making um, changes or stra- coming up with strategies to deal with this problem? Because one of the things I notice is that all these social media platforms are starting to look like each other right. in some ways. Yeah, they they steal a lot of each other's kind of best features, and in some cases they outright copy them, as yeah. as uh, Instagram has done with Snapchat. Yeah. And so, I mean, with Snapchat, their approach is simply to have an extremely controlled and curated platform of of what kind of stuff ends up in their sort of big public stories and who gets in those Snapchat Discover channels. Uh, and if you put anything that's fake or misleading in one of those Snapchat Discover channels, they might boot your media organization out. So they're like the obsessively controlled version of it. Uh, Twitter has a a pretty big problem in this area. Um, It's different than Facebook's because it's not as much of people going for traffic, although there's some element of that. Twitter is a place where a lot of influential journalists, political people, uh, you know, influential people kind of hang out there. And it's also a place that journalists in particular also look for stories. And so you have a lot of trolls and you have a lot of people trying to influence, you know, the perception of what's really trending and what's popular on Twitter. You will literally have people like there's a guy who goes by the name microchip who describes himself as a liberal. He lives in Utah, um, but he is extremely virulently anti-immigration. And so he has aligned himself with the alt-right on that. And he's a guy who has computer programming skills. So all throughout the election, he was at the command of thousands and probably tens of thousands of bots on Twitter. And if there was a hashtag that people in the kind of pro-Trump world were pushing, he would get his bots to tweet that hashtag to trigger the trending algorithm. And then they'd be able to say, see, people really care about this. Trump is number one. Our hashtag is number Number one. And so there's a tremendous amount of manipulation and gaming that's going on on Twitter. And, uh, and as has been documented, there's a huge amount of harassment that happens there as well. So that platform certainly has some challenges. And I'm, I'm continually surprised, actually, that Twitter isn't getting more grief over the bot problem. I mean, there are Twitter itself has disclosed that they estimate anywhere from around, I think, 10 to 15 percent of all of the accounts on Twitter could actually be just automated non-human accounts. 
Um, and not all of those are malicious. Um, they allow you to create kind of fun bots and things like that. But in this case, Twitter has a user growth problem. So the idea that they would wipe out 10% of their user base is they're just not going to do it. So they almost have an incentive to allow these things to be there because they need the user numbers. Wow. It sounds like we have our work cut out for us. Um, I have one last question for you. Um, so you do workshops on news verification. Um, what kind of things do you uh, talk to people about? If you can sort of sum that up kind of quickly, what, what kind of uh, tools do you want people to come away with? Yeah, I, you know, the, the first one is, is nothing you need to install or anything like that. But I think just people having an awareness and understanding that this media universe, one, it's very easy to manipulate. And people are doing that all the time for political reasons, for financial reasons. So you need to have your guard up a little bit more. And the second thing that's really different about it is before, we, you might have a newspaper that you decide to subscribe to, and you might listen to specific radio stations. And sure, you might still do that. But when it comes to places like Facebook and Twitter, you're being bombarded with a huge amount of information coming from a variety of sources, often being filtered by algorithms. And your brain is not used to consuming information that way. So you actually, we all have more responsibility now to look and see, well, wait, where I see the headline and I'm reacting to it, but let me take a second. Let me put the emotion aside. And what website did this come from? And I've, am I familiar with that website? And is there any of the sources that I trust? Are they also saying the same thing? Um, so people have have to have that extra little pause, especially before you decide to like it or share it or retweet it, because they're banking on you doing that. They need it. And so just as we have more responsibility, we also have a bit more power in that if we withhold our attention and our actions on these platforms, we can determine what spreads or doesn't. Um, so that's important. And then, you know, the other thing is, if I was to say one tool, uh, you know, the big thing is there's a tool called Reverse Image Search. It's free. Google has one at Google Images. You can upload an image. If you see something, if you see a photo of Donald Trump saving cats, you know, in thigh-high water during a hurricane, you can take that photo and you can do a reverse image search on it by uploading it. Um, and it will tell you where else on the internet that, fo that photo exists. And it might point you to an article on Snopes saying, hey, this is not real. It's a Photoshopped image. Or in the case of a lot of the photos that circulated um, from the hurricanes of people claiming, you know, this is my front yard and it's been devastated, if you reverse image search it, it might show you that, wait a second, this photo's been online for three years, so this didn't just happen as a result of Irma. So people knowing about that and doing that little right-click to search Google for that image would save a huge amount of headaches, I think. Well, Craig Silverman, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me. Craig Silverman is media editor at BuzzFeed News, where he writes about online misinformation, fake news, and content verification. And that will do it for another installment of Modern Media. Modern Media is a product of the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. Our program today was produced and edited by Laurel Tilton with Meredith Breda and assistance from Jay Klein. Our website, where you can find more information about our guests and their work, as well as past episodes, is www.modernmediapodcast.org. Our webmaster is Chris Newton. You can download episodes of Modern Media on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. Until next time, this is JNP for Modern Media.